I think we'll start. Um, good evening and welcome. My name is Kirsten Shepherd Barr, and I'm a professor of English and Theatre Studies here in the Faculty of English at Oxford. And this term I'm serving as the acting director of TORCH, which is the Oxford Research Center in the Humanities. Tonight, in launching this lecture series, we mark the very important and groundbreaking relationship between the National Trust and, through TORCH, the work of humanities scholars at Oxford. This relationship showcases research and collaboration with heritage, and it is an exciting and different type of partnership of equals that we're developing. Launched in May 2013, TORCH is a platform for Oxford's humanities scholars to collaborate with researchers across other disciplines and institutions, to work with academics across all stages of their academic careers, to develop partnerships with public and private institutions, and to engage with wider audiences. So you can see why TORCH is such a good home for the kind of partnership we're celebrating tonight. The possibilities for innovative collaboration are boundless. Just this morning, colleagues from the National Trust and researchers from Oxford spent a hugely stimulating two hours exploring the ways in which we could work together to commemorate 100 years of the Representation of the People Act, which enabled all men and some women to vote. <laughs> Moving along. <laughs> this is just one example of the increasingly close relationship between our two institutions, which also includes and I'll give you another few examples here, but they're by no means everything. Emma Turnbull's Knowledge Exchange Fellowship with the National Trust. Story interventions, including projects at Hewenden, Up Park, Ham House, and Two Willow Road. Lucy Kaufman's work, Raising the Roof with the Vine in Hampshire. And our flagship project, Trusted Source. We are deeply grateful for the funding for this project from Innovate UK, the AHRC, the National Trust, and the Faculty of History here at Oxford. It will be exciting to learn more about both the National Trust and the University over the next six lectures, full details of which can be found on the TORCH website. And I will now hand over with great pleasure to Dame Helen Ghosh, Director General of the National Trust. Thank you very much, Kirsten. I don't know who thought of this wonderful title for my talk, History, Vision and Ambition. Um, and when I looked at the, the slide that was uh, my team said, how about this slide? Um, I've tried to construct a kind of metaphor out of this slide. Um, some of you may have worked out what it is. Um, it's a group of volunteers up on the white horse, uh, above the Vale of the White Horse near Uffington. Um, and twice a year, uh, we invite them to uh, join us uh, to clean up the chalk. Uh, and in fact, were this a slightly wider lens, uh, it would, you, could, you could see uh, me and my husband also chipping away at the chalk uh, to re-whiten it. You know, the moss, the grass, the, the people who unofficially walk on it. Um, and I was trying to construct a metaphor which was about um, uh, vision. You can see so far history, the horse, uh, ambition, the ambition of all these people to turn it white. But no, it's just a lovely example, uh, I think, of collaboration. Uh, in this case, collaboration between the Trust and our uh, supporters and volunteers. So collaboration, uh, I think, is probably uh, the message I wanted to send out of this particular picture. Um, I'm very conscious that I'm uh, the kind of chapeau uh, for this series of lectures. Um, as Kirsten said, this is the first of six um, and I suppose I'm just going to give you a kind of taster uh, of what my colleagues will be talking about in the next six lectures. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about the history of the Trust. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about our strategy and what we're focusing on now. And I'm going to talk a bit um, uh, about the challenges that we have uh, where the University of Oxford, where TORCH is absolutely vital uh, to the solution. Um, I thought I'm married to an academic, uh, a member of the Faculty of History here, so the word impact uh, is one that I'm very familiar with, and the stress of the ref or whatever it's going to be called in the new world and all of those things. But I thought it might be helpful to start off uh, just to give you some sense of what impact means to the National Trust. Um, I suppose the core of our impact goes back to our foundation, 
1895, we're nothing like as venerable an institution as the University of Oxford, but we pride ourselves uh, on our, we'll be celebrating 125 years in a couple of years' time. Um, and our core purpose, as set down in our founding legislation, uh, and I'll come back to bits of these um, in the course of my talk, is to promote, and that's a very important word, to promote the preservation of places of historic interest or natural beauty for the benefit of the nation. What does that mean? Well, as history has unrolled since 1895, I suppose the way we have achieved our impact is most famously, and actually in terms of our resources, uh, whether it's financial, uh, the time spent by my staff, by our volunteers, it's been about ownership. We've promoted preservation uh, through owning uh, our houses, our countryside, our strips of canal, our decommissioned nuclear warheads, whatever it may be. Um, and now, after almost 120 years, uh, we have, if you are a National Trust member, perhaps there are one or two in the audience, or your parents may be National Trust members, um, we, if you look at our handbook, there are 500 National Trust properties, as we define them. We've got about 350 what we might call stately homes, places you pay to enter, a garden, a house, um, we have 250,000 hectares of land, a lot of it in the uplands, I'll come back to that. Uh, we own 770 miles, about 10% uh, of the coastline of England, Wales and Northern Ireland. So we have historically, though um, as I'll say later, we're thinking of different models for that element of preservation. Ownership is one way we have impact. Um, the second way, and this comes back absolutely crucially to this point about um, for the nation, which as a person from a public sector background is something I feel is extremely, I hate the word passionately, much overused by television chefs, but I feel passionately about, is about access. Uh, there is no point as owning and looking after these wonderful places if the nation uh, gets no benefit from them. They, of course, these wonderful places, collections, land, the blue butterfly, have an intrinsic value, but to share that with the nation is absolutely at the core of what we do. Um, again, we are, I would say, though I can say we're lucky, but it's thanks again to the wonderful work of my staff, volunteers, donors, supporters. Um, we have now, and it grows every year, it continues to grow, uh, about 4.5 million members, uh, in this, this country. Um, the number of visits we get is also, I think, some measure of, of the impact that we have. And again, every year this grows almost, I was going to say, to create its own challenge that we may discuss later. So every year, or in last year, to, to take that as an example, a record year for us, um, after a series of record years, we got 22 million visits to our pay-for-entry properties, um, and we got, and this is the statistic that even uh, people who think they know the National Trust go, really? Uh, we got something like, though it's always a guesstimate, 200 million visits to our coast and countryside. So in terms of the public benefit we bring, in that sense, um, it's as much or greater in our countryside than it is in the things for which perhaps uh, we're most famous. Um, so those are the two, two areas of impact. But there's also that point about promoting. Um, and um, it's fascinating, having moved into this role from, from being a public servant for so many years, I can see how we're positioned in the, um, uh, uh, I was going to say, Rainbow Coalition, the coalition uh, of uh, organizations, heritage and conservation organizations. So we sometimes promote and this is what our founders intended, through campaigning about things. A few years ago, we campaigned uh, against changes to the planning policies uh, and in favor of protection of green belt, woodland, countryside. Um, we're never going to be at the kind of Friends of the Earth, Greenpeace, Greenpeace warrior, rainbow warrior, chaining ourselves to trees. Uh, but we are at the end of believing ourselves to be a serious voice in affecting policy change, uh, particularly where it comes back to our core purpose. And we do that, and I think this is the link back to uh, the partnership we have with the university, by being a respected practitioner 
of what we do, conservation, whether it's in our houses, collections or countryside, based on the very best data and evidence, scientific, historic, uh, social science, whatever it may be. So that for us um, is what impact is all about. And I guess we can explore uh, some of those features later on. First, <coughs> a bit of uh, brief history. Um, these are our three founders. Uh, perhaps our most famous founder is the lady on the left, uh, Octavia Hill, uh, a social reformer, actually picking up Kirsten's comment, an opponent of women's suffrage. Uh, it's, you know, as any historian uh, would know, people, uh, uh, it, it's no use projecting back to figures of the past, your 21st century values, uh, a believer that there were the deserving and undeserving poor as well, but a very important social reformer, very interested in housing policy and founded housing associations uh, in London, but she cared, to use that overused word, passionately, about green spaces for the urban poor. Uh, and uh, before she uh, founded the National Trust, was fighting battles in London in particular to protect places like Parliament Hill Fields and Hampstead Heath. Uh, but her co-conspirators in the exercise to set up the Trust uh, were the two gentlemen to her left. I'm perhaps most fond of the guy in the middle who is Sir Robert Hunter because he was a civil servant. He did this job, he did this at the same time as being a civil servant actually. Don't know how he managed that. He was the solicitor to the post office uh, and uh, a resident in Surrey and loved uh, the Surrey commons. Uh, so his passion uh, was about protection of commons and the eccentric um, cleric on the right wearing one of those lovely clerical 19th century hats um, was the um, uh, was Canon Hardwick Rawnsley, whose passion was the Lake District. He was very much opposed to the idea that uh, the railways would come to the Lake District and people uh, would come to visit. Um, and these three people joined together in 1895 to form the National Trust. Most interestingly, uh, back to what are we most famous for today, their early thoughts uh, about the uh, name for the National Trust was that it should be called the Commons and Gardens Trust. And that tells you something very important about what they thought it was about. Um, and if you look at the stats, um, by 1935, and I'm just checking the stats here, um, we only uh, owned about 11 buildings. We had four things that you might call country houses, um, including um, uh, Montacute and Barrington Court. Uh, and we owned, we owned one or two things that I'd call Merry England kind of places. Uh, Long Crendon Courthouse, which is kind of down the road uh, in Buckinghamshire, um, and Alfriston Clergy House uh, was one of our early ones. Um, but they would never have envisaged that the thing that we were most famous for now uh, was the country house. Um, the other thing I remind uh, particularly journalists at the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph of whenever I can um, is that, and we were a radical lot. Um, we may not, we may, I think this, it's always a good idea to have the Duke of Westminster as your chairman, and indeed we did have the Duke of Westminster as our first chairman, uh, but we also had on our early council um, radical MPs. We had 15 Liberal MPs or members of the House of Lords. Uh, we had James Bryce MP, who was a radical, and the ex-minor MP Thomas Burt. So we were not, uh, as it were, an organisation of the establishment. We were an organisation of radicals. Um, through the uh, Edwardian period, the 20s and into the 30s, what we acquired was land and landscape. <coughs> the lady at the top you'll recognise is Beatrix Potter, uh, who was very generous to, very generous to us in terms of uh, land in the um, Lake District, though she was a very hard task mistress in terms of how we managed it. Um, and the gentleman at the bottom, historians in the room will recognise, is GM Trevelyan. Uh, from the Northumbrian Trevelyan family. Um, in 1929, uh, one of the things he wrote was a tract called Must England's Beauty Perish? Uh, and he put his belief into practice, uh, not only making donations of his own uh, from family uh, land ownings, particularly, as I say, in Northumberland, but he facilitated bringing us more land in the Lake District, uh, the Longshore Estate in Derbyshire, um, and very interestingly, given our later association with uh, Enterprise Neptune and buying Coastline, even in 1930, he was far-sighted enough to see uh, that coast was something that might need protection, and he suggested then that somebody should do a survey uh, of our coast to see what 
the National Trust might focus on. We caught up with that uh, 30 years later. Then, and I think this brings out uh, what I would say is the theme of National Trust history, uh, which is that we respond to the conservation challenge of the moment, along comes the country house. Uh, the gentleman on the left in this slide, some of you again will recognise, is Philip Carr, the Marquis of Lothian. Um, he happened to be the owner of a number of uh, stately homes. Uh, he, uh, though wealthy, like uh, many other owners of such houses in the 1930s, was attacked from a number of uh, different forces, uh, high levels of estate duty, agricultural depression, though not in his case, but in many other cases, uh, the deaths of elder sons, or sons at all, in the First World War. Uh, and there was a crisis uh, in uh, the ownership of country houses, and they were being lost at a terrifying rate. Um, not quite, in fact, interestingly, in the 30s, that wasn't as, quite as fast a rate uh, as in the 50s. But he managed uh, to do the deal, which is a blessing to us to this day, with the Treasury, the so-called Country House Scheme in 1937, uh, which said that if uh, the owner of one of these houses gave the house to the National Trust and lost their um, legal interest in it, uh, then they would be relieved of estate duties. And if they gave us an endowment, uh, then that too uh, would be tax-free. And that means uh, that, in fact, the majority of the houses that we own now came to us under that scheme. Effectively, the taxpayer bought them. Uh, there are a handful, perhaps less than a dozen, that came to us in a genuinely philanthropic way. Uh, the historic families in all uh, these places, of course, created them, and in that sense, uh, generously and in subsequent years after our ownership were often very generous supporters but it's another interesting angle on as it were the public benefit and the impact uh, that came to us. Um, I've already mentioned uh, the coast uh, 1965 we celebrated last year uh, the 50th anniversary no the year before now uh, the 50th anniversary of Enterprise Neptune what did we feel in 1965 was the conservation challenge well we felt it was coast overdevelopment um, and loss of access to coast. Our most um, successful fundraising uh, ever, uh, I think uh, more, about 70 million pounds was raised that way. Um, still, people love giving to the coast. It responds to something in the British character, and we now own, as I say, a tenth of our coastline. Um, I suppose the next thing uh, in terms of thinking about our history was moving from those big, grand uh, places that were representative of uh, the landed aristocracy to thinking more about how we could uh, help people, the nation, understand more about ordinary people's lives. So although we were still in the 80s and 90s uh, acquiring, um, mainly as a result of those uh, country house scheme transfers, uh, the grand places, Seton Delaval and Tinsfield, for example, we also started getting, I'm still, I'm never quite sure whether to describe Paul McCartney and John Lennon as ordinary people. I don't think they are ordinary people, uh, but on the left in this picture you will see Paul McCartney's house, uh, which we bought when it came up for sale and is one of our most um, uh, popular properties and we uh, were given by Yoko Ono, that was a genuine gift, uh, John Lennon's childhood home. <coughs> you can see at the top, Southall Workhouse. Uh, we thought that having a workhouse uh, would represent something about the social life of so many people right, of course, into the 20th century, and we knew that that was a very good example uh, of the model. Uh, and at the bottom, and this is relatively close to home, so please do go and visit it, the back-to-backs in Birmingham. Um, these were some of the last surviving back-to-backs uh, in a 10 minutes walk from New Street, bought in partnership with uh, the Birmingham Civic Trust. Um, and delightfully, um, uh, we have uh, one of our volunteers there who does the tours, uh, lived in a back-to-back -back herself, and she is absolutely excellent at saying, don't think that living in a back-to-back -back was in any way romantic. Uh, if, when you needed to go to the loo, you had to walk across the courtyard and go to the privy. It, it unpacks uh, some of those myths about uh, the romance of the past uh, and brings people back to reality. And then lastly, I suppose, um, in terms of the history up till now, I think the big change, and this was very much uh, credit to my predecessor, uh, Dame Fiona Reynolds, um, <coughs> was the idea that the National Trust needed to be more open-armed, uh, really be conscious of this point that we were for the nation. 
And through her period in the noughties, uh, we very much became, I think, just more welcoming. Um, you know, take down the ropes, light the fires, particularly more welcoming to families, um, uh, set up schemes like the 50 things to do before you're 11 and three quarters, try and engage children uh, who've lost touch with nature with nature. Uh, this idea that these places are the nation's places. They don't just belong to this institution called the National Trust. Uh, two examples here, um, somebody playing the piano at the Vine and mountain biking at Malam Tarn. Uh, so I turn up as a new chief executive just about four years ago. Um, and of course, when you're taking over a successful institution, some of you will have done this and you would turn up and you think, what on earth am I going to do? How can I make this any better? Indeed, perhaps the only way is down from this point. Um, but what I did uh, was to, among other things, apart from sort of taking up the floorboards on the finance and investing in some new IT and digital and tills and such things, uh, was to say, okay, if the history of the trust uh, is about facing up to the conservation challenge of the day, what is the challenge to the National Trust today? Uh, and I'll talk briefly about four areas uh, where we believe uh, the National Trust has an important part to play uh, back to our, in, in delivering our core purpose for the nation. Um, we concluded uh, overall, actually, that uh, if you looked back to uh, uh, our past and if Octavia Hill came back, uh, in terms of protection of historic buildings, though there are still, and I'll come on to this a bit later, uh, all sorts of um, uh, buildings that are in, uh, at risk or in danger uh, in all sorts of ways, that probably as a nation we could get sort of eight out of ten on that. Uh, but the area in which uh, we felt that the nation had failed, we had collectively failed, I think most profoundly, uh, was in um, biodiversity. Uh, that 60% of uh, species uh, uh, in the UK are in some way in decline, um, and that as a large landowner, we have a part we can play in that restoration. And I'll say if that, those are the two big themes uh, of playing our part. But first of all, we've got to look after this fantastic legacy of things that we have the privilege of looking after. Um, thanks to uh, the growth in support and the uh, tremendous generosity of, of many of our donors and supporters, we are currently spending more than ever before on straightforward conservation, whether that's our buildings and collections uh, or our countryside. We spend about £100 million every year on conservation. That's out of a turnover um, at the moment of about £500 million every year. Uh, this is a wonderful example, um, and it also, uh, uh, um, uh, Kirsten mentioned it earlier on, it is a link through to some of the work we're doing with the university. This is the Vine in Hampshire. Uh, this is the early 1530s chapel uh, built by uh, Lord Sands. Um, and this is a wonderful master glazier. And when I saw him doing it, it was like suddenly I thought I could be, it could be 1530 again, uh, restoring uh, one of the sets of stained glass there. Um, it's sort of by definition, I won't use the word unique, uh, but what is so wonderful about this glass, among other things, um, is that uh, in one of the sets of panels, uh, there is the young Henry VIII and the young Catherine of Aragon looking extremely beautiful. Um, and so that dates very precisely when the glass was created. And we are currently doing a big conservation project there, in particular to put the roof on, and if we have a decent roof, then um, uh, it will look after the contents of the building. Uh, but there we are working um, in uh, partnership, in particular with Lucy Kaufman, on how we can present and bring to life uh, the vine, and in particular, this chapel. Uh, so what we're going to be doing with her and with uh, the University of Southampton um, is recreating the service or services uh, that were held in the chapel. In particular, that slightly tricksy one uh, where Henry VIII uh, turned up on a progress in, 80, in 1535 with his next wife, uh, Anne Boleyn, and they couldn't go back to London because of the plague, and so there was a service in that chapel, and she had to sit there and gaze at this stained glass of her predecessor. Um, I'm just fascinated to know uh, quite how we will uh, um, 
shimmy our way through that. But uh, <laughs> she probably just felt very triumphant that she was now there. Um, we're also at the Vine, and we'll be covering this in a later uh, session, uh, working with the Centre for Science and Engineering in Arts, Heritage and Archaeology, uh, uh, Alison Viles' team, and they're helping us with looking at the brickwork uh, at the Vine um, and the science around that and making sure that the conservation we do on that um, is the best that it can possibly be. As I said, um, if we thought about back to Octavia Hill and her friends and what they would want us to be focusing on beyond that absolutely central issue about looking after what we've got, uh, it would be what part can we play in re re restoring, I was going to say recreating, ideally not just restoring but making even better uh, our natural environment. This is our healthy and beautiful natural environment. Um, objective strategy um, and because we are a large landowner uh, though much of our land most of our land is farmed by farm tenants so this is very much a partnership exercise we feel we can really make a difference so we are looking in a doomsday book sense at our own land the state it's in its biodiversity uh, the appropriate uses for that land in terms of the balance between food production uh, and nature um, and also working with other landowners and NGOs, RSPB, the Wildlife Trust, and so on, to see how we can, as Professor John Lawton would want us to do, do that on a landscape scale. Um, this particular example uh, is a local example. It's Nuffield Place. It's a meadow that we've created at Nuffield Place uh, on the road up to Nettlebed. Um, and as uh, keen butterfly spotters will see, uh, that is a resting common blue. Um, when I launched this uh, strategy uh, in March uh, 2015, um, it, perhaps the greatest coverage was the fact that we talked a lot about climate change. That was not very popular with some elements of the media, um, was regarded as highly political, but climate change, we believe, is one of the uh, greatest challenges uh, to conservation. Both of our buildings, because of extreme weather, effect on roofs, dampness in the houses, uh, silverfish, but obviously explicitly in our countryside. Um, this is a flood at Braithwaite in Cumbria, which is on our land. And there um, uh, we are working with the uh, water company, with the local community, uh, with the environment agency to see how different ways of managing the land uh, upstream um, can hold water back um, meandering, better use, better uh, recreation of peat bogs, and prevent flooding downstream. Um, so there are, I suppose, again, that's another aspect of impact uh, that the way we manage land can have uh, not only those biodiversity and nature impacts, but also impacts uh, in terms of other social benefits. Um, a very different picture. This is a park in Newcastle, and this brings me to the third uh, area of our strategy that I was going briefly to mention, uh, which is, in resource terms and in people terms, very small. In potential impact terms, uh, over uh, the decades ahead, I think quite great. Um, it's called the places where people live strand. We're very conscious uh, that um, uh, however hard, however wide we spread our arms, however much we reach out uh, to the population as a whole, there will, are some people who will never, for all sorts of reasons, visit our places. But we can still bring them benefit. Um, and one of the ways uh, we've been working at the moment to see how we can bring benefit is in the face of local authority budget cuts, thinking about how we can apply our expertise and help, uh, in this instance, Newcastle City Council, pay for the upkeep of parks, green open spaces, back to Octavia Hill. Uh, and so we are working with uh, Newcastle and other cities to see if there are models with a bit of endowment, uh, with a bit of social enterprise, using our volunteering models, uh, to, to ensure that future generations uh, can enjoy uh, parks and open spaces as we have done. This is just another example of where we're working in partnership with the local community, local conservation groups. Um, this is Moseley Road Baths in Birmingham, and I had a wonderful morning, uh, though slightly overwhelming in terms of all the work that needed to be done in terms of conservation there. It's a wonderful 1907 bath um, on, uh, in Balsall Heath. Um, and as you can see, it's one of these fabulous, well, in this sense, Edwardian buildings, which has a combination of kind of proper municipal use, but let's make it splendid. But of course, now the tiles are chipped and the ironwork is rusting, and we are working with, as I say, local groups to see um, how we might help them um, bring these baths back to life. 
Um, and last of all, uh, though if Debbie Dance from the Oxford Preservation Society were here, she would, I think, object to this uh, because it's not quite classified correctly. Um, we are supporting a thing called Heritage Open Days, uh, which organises a weekend every year uh, where people can visit Heritage. The doors are open on a whole range of, I think it's about 5,000 places in towns and cities across the country. Completely different audience. Um, Oxford Open Doors is not strictly speaking a Heritage Open Day, but this of course is a wonderful local example. This is the painted room in what was the Crown Inn above, among, above Betfred uh, in the Corn Market. So it's very popular, so get yourself on the list. Um, I'll now come to the fourth of our four strategic um, outcome impact objectives, um, which perhaps picks up um, uh, in particular the work that we've been doing with the university and with Torch. Uh, we call it experiences that move, teach and inspire. It's this point that unless we engage and inspire the nation in what we are looking after for them, then in a sense we're completely failing in what we do. And in a very practical sense, uh, we're losing the opportunity for the support and the membership and the money that we can put back into conservation in the future. But essentially for me, it's about this is for the nation and how do we engage them. Um, and I suppose the place we start when we're presenting our houses, our places, and I'm consciously here going to talk a bit more about houses, well, more about houses and collections than countryside, but the same issue applies to countryside. We start, as many of you uh, in your, uh, in, in those of you who are curators will start, in this sense of the spirit of the place, um, which has all sorts of uh, very respectable uh, academic um, uh, uh, antecedents uh, to guide us. I just love this example, and it's the one I always give. So on the left, you have Polesden Lacey, which is a very glamorous, uh, it was the home of a socialite, Mrs. Ronnie Greville. Um, she had parties. She was the heiress to the Newcastle Brewery, Newcastle Brown Brewery. Um, but she had parties, Prince of Wales, and all sorts of socialites. She, so everything gleamed. So we keep uh, Polesden Lacey in a sense of constant gleam. It's always polished. It's, the gold is topped up. Uh, as you can see, we keep it as much as we can as, as Mrs. Greville uh, would have it. On the right is one of, I'm afraid to say, one of my favourite places. I'm not really allowed favourites. It's Chasselton, which is just on the borders of Oxfordshire. Some of you will have visited it, uh, which is a wonderfully melancholy kind of place uh, built by one family uh, who then uh, lost all their money and happily, therefore, never did anything to it after that. Um, and when the the trust acquired it, it had cracks and dust and probably mice. And so we've kind of left that a bit untouched and the spirit of that place is a bit melancholy, a bit dusty um, and so on. Um, so we're guided by the spirit of the place. Um, we're also, um, and we use that spirit of the place, um, not just to housekeep, which was my previous slide, but also to think about how we tell stories. Um, and this is another great example from Polston Lacey. Because of the, uh, the link between beer and champagne, um, uh, then Polston uses that in all sorts of ways. So this year's story is about the, par the parties uh, that Mrs. Greville used to have. And you can just see a bit of stout on the left-hand side there uh, and champagne, the rise of a sparkling socialite, um, so that we're telling the story of Polston Lacey uh, through that lens. There is always a challenge to us, um, and those of you who read the press uh, will, um, uh, uh, certain elements of the press will pick that up, um, that uh, we constantly, and I suspect that's also true of museum or art gallery curators, but it's particularly acute for us given the breadth of the audience, uh, are treading a line between the so-called the dumbing down over here and the, what I call the footnote brigade over there. Why haven't you still got those guidebooks with all the footnotes in them? Um, and um, this is where I think we come back to this point that everything we do in terms of how we inspire, move, teach our visitors has to be based on the very best evidence and scholarship, but then we have to think about how we can meet our visitors in the place where they want to be. And um, uh, I always use the analogy here of uh, one of my managers at Mottisfont, in fact, says uh, it's as though we've got some people who want to paddle We've got some people who want to swim, and we've got some people who want to dive. Um, and the challenge for us is to provide something for all of those different groups of people 
uh, and um, so that they feel satisfied uh, by their visit or remotely, without even visiting us, can get what they want. Um, sometimes we have, against that background, difficult stories to tell. This is, I believe, one of the most tricky stories that we have to tell. Um, this is a place called Penryn. It was built by the Douglas Pennant family. I don't know what your taste in uh, Norman Victorian architecture. William, you may love this kind of stuff. It's pretty hideous, I think. <laughs> it's full of terrible Norman fake... But it's, it's a very different, difficult place to explain in architectural terms. The family is very difficult to like, I will say that. They, don't, they are not there anymore, of course. Um, they made their money in slavery, and then they were responsible for one of the most bitter industrial disputes of the early 20th century at their slate mine down the road. Um, and the challenge to us in doing the research and then back to my swimmers and divers and paddlers, conveying why this extraordinary building, uh, what was the history, how did it happen, when there are all sorts of sensitivities. Some local people will not set foot in this building because of the cruelty of that strike more than 100 years ago, um, is a, a challenge to us. But we have to find imaginative ways of doing it, uh, new art, theatrical presentation, and just excellent explanation um, of what is going on. Um, we also are experimenting more and more with what one might call immersive experiences. This is Upton House uh, on the borders of Warwickshire, Lord Bairstead's house. He was a banker, um, and this particular exhibition, which ran for two years, uh, transformation that ran for two years, uh, was about the story of the bank moving to uh, the um, uh, house, the country house from the city uh, at the beginning of the Second World War. That's the telegram on the roof projected on the ceiling of the dining room, which said, OK, we're ready, we're coming. Um, and this is a wonderful example of swimming, paddling, swimming and diving. Uh, in that, we then transformed the house into, as it was with the office and the typist room and the dormitories for the male and female clerks, and you could genuinely choose what you wanted. So, um, uh, choose the level of, uh, of immersion that you wanted. So, if you wanted, you could open the drawers of all the desks in the typist room and see the telegrams and read about the instructions from one banker to another. I have to say, that's what my husband and son did. Or, you could just walk up the stairs to the room where we had make, do and mend and sit down and do some knitting. Um, so that kind of um, uh, choice uh, in immersion, uh, fantastically important and central to how we present things. Um, and of course, we need money to do all this. Um, so uh, growing support, I always say there are four strategic objectives for the Trust, and then there is the fifth, which is how do we earn the money to do all this? Um, this is just a great example. At Killerton down in Devon, they needed £100,000 uh, to uh, do up the roof. Um, uh, roofs are fantastically expensive. At Durham uh, in Bath, uh, putting the roof on there cost us £3.8 million. Pounds. Uh, a tapestry at Hardwick cost £250, um, £250, not million, £1,000 uh, a shot. How do we finance that? Well, it's a mix of the money we make on our visitor business, generous grants from people like HLF um, uh, and other uh, foundations and trusts, and fundraising uh, from um, uh, individuals, both in their lifetimes and in their wills. Um, and Hilary uh, McGrady and Jackie uh, Jordan will talk more about both those operational things um, and about uh, the uh, commercial side um, later on. Uh, sorry, later on in the series. Um, I'll just whiz through, because um, uh, Kirsten has already talked about some of this, uh, just then how this is reflected in uh, this, uh, the, the partnership we have with you and indeed with other universities. Um, on the back of our new strategy, just this year, um, we concluded that if we've got this wonderful new strategy with all these strands, with all this ambition for the next 10 years, we actually need to make sure we've got the research uh, and the data that underlies it. Um, and therefore, we commissioned, and Katie Knowles, who is here somewhere um, at the back, um, uh, coordinated this for us, has put together a research strategy, which, which um, uh, although clearly at this stage at a relatively high level, identifies the gaps uh, at the areas where we're, we're relatively confident or have the resource within the organisation, and the gaps. Uh, near where, uh, where we need to fill them, whether this is in terms of our biodiversity ambitions or our conservation ambitions, or uh, back to my uh, uh, the discussion about Move, Teach and Inspire, our interpretation um, ambitions. Um, 
Research collaboration of the kind that we're engaging in with Oxford University isn't new to us, um, but it's now, I suppose, we've moved to a new scale. Uh, that's the step change for us and why it's so welcome. Um, those of you who saw the Alan Titchmarsh programme on Thursday last week? Was it earlier this week? Tuesday this week. I uh, will have seen this wonderful thing where uh, someone from Krakow University is listening to the furniture at Knoll. At Knoll, we're restoring both the building and also the collection. And there is a little listening device you can now put on a piece of furniture and you can hear it creak when the relative humidity changes or if the woodworm are uh, buzzing, uh, are um, eating about inside it. And this is conveyed back to Krakow and they can tell you what you should be doing in terms of your conservation heating and what you need to do with your woodworm. So, utterly fascinating. So there's a, an example. Um, Chinese wallpapers, top left, that was a partnership with UCL uh, that concluded in a, an international conference, which I was lucky enough to attend uh, at the VNA. Um, and on the right-hand side, some AHRC-funded uh, work we did with the University of Southampton about the making of the modern harpsichord, um, which... Um, uh, financed some PhD students from the University of Southampton. Um, in terms of what we've been doing with Oxford, again Kirsten has mentioned some of this, this is just an excuse to put up one of my favourite National Trust objects. Some of you may recognise it. This is Disraeli's Electoral Triumph Chair. So the young Disraeli commissioned a chair so that when he won, as he thought he would do, uh, elections in Buckinghamshire. Was that where he first stood? I'm looking at William at this point. Uh, he would have a triumphal chair on which he could be carried through the streets of High Wycombe or wherever it was. Oh dear. He had it built and he didn't win the elections. And indeed he had to wait until I think 1837 uh, and then he had to go to Maidstone. So it was never used for the purpose intended, but there it is. It sits at, um, uh, it sits at uh, Hewenden uh, as a memorial to his, well, you know, thwarted ambition at one stage, but his real, his achieved ambition at the other. Um, Kirsten talked about this. Uh, we've done some work there with the university um, on how we can better convey the significance of Disraeli and the relevance of Disraeli and all that stuff about the Middle East. Remember that, the Eastern question uh, that he was grappling with in the 19th century um, and as it were, make sure that however, back to our layers of interpretation, but that all of that is based on the very best contemporary interpretation of what Disraeli was up to. Uh, the Doll's House, um, uh, we had a fabulous afternoon seminar about the 18th century Doll's House at Upper, what it was for, uh, uh, how we could present it. Um, as Kirsten said, uh, European modernism at our modernist house, Two Willow Road, Ernest Goldfinger's um, own home. Um, and uh, at Ham House, how we should present, how we should understand the kind of cabinet of curiosities there. And again, as she said, um, that we're now working with the university on national programmes, in particular uh, suffrage uh, next year, uh, but after that radical landscapes celebrating the 200th anniversary of Peterloo, um, and then empire beyond that. Um, I think one of the um, uh, areas of which we are both most mutually proud, um, and it really comes back to the how can we make sure that people can get at whatever level they want, the data they want, is this one, a trusted source. I think there was a, a sheet on your tables about this. So that um, uh, when, uh, whether we or our guidebooks or our volunteers kind of assume people know things, uh, actually, if they don't, there's somewhere for them to go. And indeed, this is equally of use to us in terms of uh, making sure that we can tell the stories correctly. So all sorts, and I know some of you in this room are connected with it uh, and are contributing to it, um, of uh, people in the university are, are contributing their knowledge and wisdom to precisely these questions. Who were the Whigs? Well, actually, I don't think I would be able to answer that question, despite having done, of course, you know, a modern history course at Oxford University. What is patriotism? Very relevant today. So it is a wonderful resource for us and for the nation um, in terms of telling our stories. So that's it from me. Um, I hope that's conveyed to you a bit about the kind of impact that we're trying to have. I suppose this final slide was only that uh, we are all, both us and the university, um, are in a challenging period um, in our nation's history and indeed in our own history. Uh, this is a, a, a melange of different challenges. We've got, as it were, 
from our point of view, our core purpose, uh, development uh, challenges, we've got Brexit challenges and potential economic challenges. As a charity, uh, we've got uh, increasing public and media scrutiny of that. Um, we continue to get, I love that, um, the Mail Online, we're having an LGBTQ festival this year to celebrate the decriminalisation of homosexuality. Uh, and gosh, we've got some criticism for that, but it is the right thing. We are about the nation. So we are all operating in a tough climate. Um, and I suppose I just wanted to end by saying, and it's in tough times that it's important that great institutions like Oxford University and the National Trust stand together. So thank you very much for standing with us. Thank you very much. I'll leave this up because it's, you know, it's, it's, kind of relevant. it's suitably jolly and so we'll have that. So my name is William White and um, with uh, Oliver Cox and Alice Perkis, I'm, I'm part of the trusted source team here in Oxford and working also um, with a number of people, uh, including Charles there at the National Trust, to bring that project um, to, well, we're halfway through now. To completion, I guess. I'm also here to speak up on behalf of the Victorian neo-Norman um, and the uh, delights of Penryn. I mean, I have no locus in defending slavery or uh, anything like that, but uh, my main job here is to chair this session and also now to invite Professor Karen O'Brien, who is head of the Humanities Division here in Oxford, to respond to uh, Helen's talk. Karen. Thank you, and thank you so much, Helen, for such a wonderful lecture. I'm going to, I don't know if I can move the screen so that shame of charities that drove Olive to her death is not going to stare me in the face from the podium <laughs> because it's sitting right there, so excuse me if I do that. Um, I, uh, I'm be, I've been head of the Humanities Division only since September, and it was one of the great pleasures of my arrival to discover that we have this thriving partnership already with the National Trust. It's something that if it didn't exist, I would have had to have invented it. So I'm, I'm immensely grateful that it's been invented, and it's been uh, pursued with such, such panache, such flair, and I think such genuine respect for what we can both bring in terms of our wonderful institutions to, uh, to the party and how we can really strengthen each other in our collaboration. Uh, I was asked just to say a little bit about the Humanities Division. I know that, that people will be at a different kind of level of familiarity with what we do in terms of humanities at Oxford, so I'll say a little bit about that and about my own experience of working in the kind of partnership uh, arrangements that, that we have with the National Trust uh, and elsewhere in the UK. So the Humanities Div Division in Oxford is quite simply the biggest grouping of humanities scholars anywhere in any university in the world. We have 484 academic staff, 194 research staff, uh, and on the student side, we have 4,200 undergraduates, 1,000 research students, and 600, uh, 767 master's students taught across 92 master's programs. And we get a research income of around 12 million pounds a year. And I promise that's the last of the numbers, but I am always, uh, I always kind of, there's always a sharp intake of breath with me when I contemplate the scale uh, of what we do uh, at Oxford. I like to try and summarize it. I don't know if my colleagues would be happy with the strap line, but, but everybody always wants a, a strap line. In, in presentations that I'm asked to give elsewhere in the university. So I like to say that in humanities we are preserving, interpreting and critiquing the cultural heritage and history of the world because we genuinely do do that and we do it across so many languages and so many fields. We have nine faculties including a faculty of oriental studies, linguistics and other more familiar disciplines uh, and we have been, uh, as you know, we've been teaching classics and oriental studies since the middle ages in the 17th century and we've always been in many ways very interdisciplinary so if you think of our founding disciplines, literary, humaniores, classics, that's already archaeology, languages, history, literature melded together. Uh, in one faculty. But it is also true to say that in recent years we have become more overtly interdisciplinary in our concerns uh, and that's partly reflecting a cultural, historical uh, and political environment in which we increasingly understand that some of the traditional ways in which we've interpreted history or interpreted literature are greatly enhanced and improved by talking across disciplines, both within our division but of course clearly across the interfaces with other disciplines. So we spend a lot of time 
talking to experimental psychologists and neuroscientists, to people in physics, to people in medicine, to people in maths, uh, and we try to learn and forge new ways of understanding through those interdisciplinary collaborations. You heard a little bit about the Oxford Centre for Research and the Humanities Torch. This has been, uh, in the last few years, a major vehicle, not the only vehicle, but a major vehicle for humanities to really crystallise and showcase that interdisciplinary dialogue. Uh, and I understand that last year it brought 13,000 people to 40 events. So you're being counted today. That will go into the number. <laughs> it will be a bigger number even at the end of this year. Uh, and, and Torch has, has a huge number, a huge range of networks and activities, but it asks thematically some of those very big questions. So it is asked, what does it mean to be human in the digital age? And this year we're asking broad questions about humanities and identities, which seem to be immensely topical in the world in which we currently find ourselves. And we're also thinking very profoundly about what digital research methods mean for us in humanities, because as I'm sure you can see, uh, and you're aware, a lot of our resources have been digitized. A lot of the way that we interact now with text is not uh, dusty books in the library, and some of them are dusty, and some of them are not even slightly dusty, but we, we interact with digital resources. And that isn't simply a replacement of the book with the digital, it's actually a whole new mode of research. It's intrinsically more collaborative. It's a different way of conceptualizing how we do humanities that sits alongside the methods that we've used for many hundreds of years. So part of what we're doing at the kind of meta-theoretical level is thinking about what it means to do digital research and how that will ultimately transform uh, the mode of humanities that we have. And I always say we will not be talking about digital humanities in a few years' time because we don't talk about print humanities and no one ever talked about manuscript humanities because they didn't know the book was going to be invented. So that will just be humanities. And I don't know what the next thing will be. But humanities is constantly evolving. And of course, it's very important to say that we are working endlessly and so closely with the Bodleian, with the Ashmolean, with the Natural History Museum. We hardly know in humanities where the libraries end and where we begin and where the Ashmolean ends and where we begin. It's a, it's a close and highly productive partnership. But we need more partnerships. Uh, and I think what we're experiencing, what we've seen at Oxford, has been quite typical of a lot of universities, but I think we are doing it in exceptionally interesting ways. Uh, I think this sense that uh, universities need to engage more broadly with external partners, it's partly come from within, it's partly something we've always done, but there has been, in terms of government funding, as you know, and in terms of the research uh, assessment exercise, a very strong drive to encourage universities to think long and hard about the impact uh, of what they do, what impact that has on wider society and how they engage. So we have to wrestle with quite a technical vocabulary of impact, of impact case studies, of PE, public engagement, of KE, knowledge exchange. And we sort of know what those things mean and we use that vocabulary because that gets us some money and then we invent our own way of doing things. But I do like, I think the vocabulary of knowledge exchange actually is particularly good for us. And Kirsten, who is acting director of Torch, is also our knowledge exchange champion for the division because I think that idea that if we are partnering with external organisations and if we are trying to find new ways of positioning our knowledge and interacting with a wider group of people, whether they're school children, future applicants, a wider public, whatever that may mean, it does genuinely need to be reciprocal. It does genuinely need to be almost a kind of epistemological process, if you like, of understanding where someone else in a different domain that may seem somewhat similar, it might be a museum, it might be a cultural organisation, it might be the Royal Opera House, which was a, a partnership I knew something about when I was working in London, uh, but understanding how those organisations conceptualise their mission, their impact. We heard from Helen about how the National Trust thinks about impact. It's very different, actually, from how, how a university would think about it, and how they conceptualise what a research agenda might mean in those kind of organisations, and how do we bring that together with the ways in which we think about that in humanities. And they're very different. And clearly for us, some of that will be around the idea of expertise. I know the expert is much maligned person at the moment, but uh, the expert is never going to go away. Uh, and I think uh, what certainly in terms of that sort of, if one thinks of it as a kind of one-way uh, sort of transfer of knowledge, then yes, of course, universities bring truly credible expertise to the party. It's, it's very important that that credibility is something that we, we maintain, that what we do is grounded in the rigour of our research and the evidence base of our research. 
Uh, and I sort of, I, I, do, I do understand how very important that is for organisations like the National Trust. I'm sure many of you had that experience of going around those country houses, uh, maybe as kids, maybe your parents were dragging you around, and you saw these very short sort of double beds, in, you know, with these big Elizabethan bolsters. And somebody somewhere told you that was because people in the Elizabethan age were really short. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, people, people are a lot taller than they were. Now, it turns out that's not really the case. There is some evidence of of course, that with better diet, people grow taller and they reach puberty earlier and people are, are genuinely a bit healthier than they were in the Elizabethan times. But it was also just the way that people slept. So, for, so just the irritation, actually, of, of feeling that uh, you're getting a kind of uh, non-rigorous history or non-evidence-based history, it shouldn't be underestimated because I think it undermines the credibility of, of, of the cultural organisation and it undermines the credibility of whoever it is who supplied that information. So I think collectively we do stand for the rigour of our expertise. But I've also learned through Torch and through the many organisations that I've worked with that thinking, uh, as the government has encouraged us to do about impact, is actually uh, immensely, immensely stimulating, actually. And I think, uh, you know, one can be very cynical about all of these government exercises that we have to go through in relation to our research, but actually asking ourselves the question, how do we take what we do in our books or what we do in our articles and how do we, how do we take that into a different kind of space and how do we do that meaningfully and how do we know that's had an impact has been really challenging and interesting for UK academia. So one of our impact case studies, for example, was a, a historian uh, in our history faculty, Jane Humphreys, who'd written a book about child labour in the Victorian period, groundbreaking research, and that then became a BBC4 documentary and it really encouraged us to think quite differently, not only about the Industrial Revolution and the role of child labour in the Industrial Revolution, but also actually about those spaces, those workhouses, those factories, those remnants of, of Industrial Britain that we see around us and who inhabited them and how, how they work. So I think it's absolutely fundamental to the way that we need to think about ourselves. I've had experience, particularly in this area, because another respect in which we are really encouraged to partner in a genuine exchange of knowledge kind of way has been around doctoral training. So for some time, the research councils have been saying to all disciplines, you need to provide a number of scholarships where the doctoral student won't just be in the lab, won't just be in the, in the clinical site or in the library, but they will actually do part of their doctorate in a host organisation, uh, and that will actually shape the way that they conceptualise the problem that, that they, they're, they're addressing and, and what they do. Uh, and I've worked with, uh, because I had to work in my previous job across a range of disciplines with London Zoo, that was, that was great fun, Kew Gardens, uh, I've seen partnerships with Wadston Manor, with the Royal Shakespeare Company, with Jane Austen's brother's house at Chawton uh, in Hampshire, and all of these sites and all of these partnerships provide particularly doctoral students with a really transformational way of working in partnership with other organisations. I think it's important that we all understand, as I said earlier on, that there's a kind of epistemological difference between organisations. Uh, and there's also within universities, I think, very profound differences in terms of the way that humanities works and the way that other subject groups work. Uh, and sometimes we have to state that very strongly because we find ourselves being drawn into another kind of academic paradigm that doesn't work for us. And I think, again, cultural partnerships, other kinds of partnerships, really help us to, sh to, sort, of sh to sh sort of sharpen that up. So I think for a lot of social science, research begins with the sense that there is a global problem or a, 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 a national problem uh, of, of some, of a social problem of some kind, and it's the work of academics' uh, research to address that problem and to consider solutions and to consider analysis. We often have in humanities that paradigm sort of pushed a little bit towards us, and some of us do work in that kind of way, but it's not a, a comfortable fit for humanities. We're not really in the business of taking external problems and solving them or addressing them quite that way. We do things differently. We don't work in the way that the hard sciences or the medical sciences work by refuting the findings uh, of, of previous scholars, by identifying or falsifying previous findings, or by being able to repeat their experiments. It's not really how we work. I think humanities, academics work by uh, using evidence uh, to find new ways of understanding things. 
Uh, and then when that kind of whole new way of understanding has been opened up, they intensify that understanding. Uh, and then some other new piece of evidence comes along of some new way of seeing or some new social atmosphere, and the question changes and the conversation moves on, and we get a new set of evidence and we reinterrogate. So humanities is a constant process of reinterrogation, and I think those external partnerships, like the one that we have with the National Trust, allow us to do that so much better. They, they allow us to refresh the way that we think. So what are humanities about? I, I think we share... Uh, with the National Trust and with, with many external bodies, an interest in the public realm as the abode of meaning. Uh, I think we ask ourselves what is art, what is history, what is language, uh, and we ask ourselves what happens when people look, read and listen, how art, history and ideas are mediated in the social domain through language, communication and cultural practice. And I think that exploratory and critical approach to the present and to the past is something that we can do much better if we do it in partnership with others. So as you can tell, my commitment for the humanities is, is to do more of what we're doing, but also to to continue with that really transformational outward turn that we've been making. And this is a wonderful example. So thank you, Dame Helen, for your engagement with us and for your talk. Thank you. Great. Perfect. Well, thank you very much um, for, for your talks and... Um, what I thought we'd do is begin, first of all, by getting you to talk to one another in a, in a sort of tangible example of the kind of interdisciplinary knowledge exchange that we're attempting here, and, and then invite questions from, 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 the, uh, from the audience. So can I start you off with just picking up on something Karen was saying, which is this process of translation, as it were, not just exchanging ideas, but this epistemological shift that has to be made. And you said that our definition in the University of Impact is very, very different from the National Trust's definition of impact. And I wondered, I was going to ask you, Helen, first of all, whether you agree with that. Um, I suspect it's the case that uh, the world in which an academic, the humanities division here works, inevitably, it's a it's a, a narrower definition of impact. Um, Karen can uh, uh, gainsay me on this. So I think the fascination of what we do, but at the same time as I indicated the challenge, is that if you are for the nation, your door is open to everybody. And uh, I, we are as welcoming to uh, the person who just really wants to turn up at the place and go and have a nice cup of coffee in the cafe and perhaps might be lured to, into the house if there's, we can kind of make it interesting enough for them to feel it's for them, you know. And we have to welcome the top-end art critic um, who, uh, as I say, loves his or her footnotes, um, will be extremely sniffy about the even temporary introduction of some bean bags in a, a room in Ickworth. <laughs> They were only there for about five minutes, but you know I'm, the, the reverberations continue even to this day. Um, and we, the breadth of the people that we have to welcome because of our purpose is is great. Um, I do. I mean, the the, the elements. Um, it wasn't exactly uh, uh, Karen wasn't specifically talking about the definition of impact uh, when she was talking about this, but I do think there are. There's that kind of common excitement thing about what uh, academic, and obviously I'm most familiar being married to a historian and having been once a historian myself, that there is the excitement, however, of information that can be as exciting as exciting to the person who's just come for a cup of coffee as the art historian. And that, uh, the kind of unexpected fact, the, the, the unexpected, no, it's not because uh, the Elizabethans were shorter, which you have always thought, but it is because um, uh, they slept differently. You must tell me later, what does this mean? Do they sleep curled up or they, they, sit, up. they sit up, yeah. don't they? They sit up on their pillows. <laughs> That's the kind of thing that everybody can get, has that kind of wow factor to it. So um, I, do, I do think there are areas where that kind of academic impact and the impact on the individual can be kind of universal. 
No, I mean, I think I don't want to overstate the difference. I think its impact is often what are you measured by. So, yes. So uh, actually, uh, we all uh, have, uh, all, of, all of our kinds of organisations have potentially a profoundly transformational effect on the individual. You know, I took my children walking along the Pembrokeshire coastal path this summer. I mean, we've all had those kind of experiences. Yes. They are absolutely transformational and wonderful, particularly at a certain time in your life, and they stay with you all the time, and that can be just as much uh, and as long-lasting as spending, you know, a number of years being taught an English degree here at Oxford University. And I think that that reshaping of individual lives from the inside is something that, that, that our two organisations yes. are absolutely all about, and we do it through sustained teaching, uh, and you do it by making fabulous environments available for, for people to revisit. And I think revisiting is part of the impact that, that yes. I know that the National Trust yeah. has. So I think, I think the, the, I mean, the divergence is, is clearly significant, but it, a, lo a lot of it is how, how are you measured. But I think there's some convergence in the sense that, that you have been, um, under your leadership and your predecessor, very clear about the need for impact across generations, impact yes. on young people, impact across a wider social spectrum, but also in terms of the history that the National Trust embodies, capturing a broader history. Yes. So being frank, as we have been frank at Oxford, about the, the heritage of slavery, which country houses sit on slave money, being frank about LGBT history, being frank yeah. about the upstairs, downstairs, social range of, 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 of the country house estates that we've all got to know. So there are real analogies, but we are obviously measured very differently in terms yes. of, of what people expect to see from us. I mean, and, and it's, it's not a tricky area, but it's, no, it's not a tricky area at all. But again, some of our critics kind of groan when you use the word relevance. And, you, you know, we're trying to make things relevant. Oh, the National Trust is trying to make things relevant. And um, I, personally, I translate that, and I think this does absolutely come back to your point about what are you trying to do in the university. Um, I come back to, well, actually, it's a Neil McGregor idea, but it's such a powerful idea, that what a lot of us are trying to do, he was talking about his time at the British Museum, but I... But, we could talk about what we're doing at the Trust and you could talk about it in the Humanities Division, is what we're trying to do is to get people to look at the world around them now in a different way. Um, and that's what relevance is to me, and I, I, to, for, for me, in terms of the National Trust, and I guess that's what you were talking about just then, that as a result of whatever you're doing with your undergraduates and your graduates and the research you produce, people will not just say, oh, that's wonderful, I now know that about the Assyrians, but they will say, so how does, what does this mean for the world I live in now? Of which the work on Disraeli, I think, is a great example. You know, the Middle East and the Eastern question, will we ever solve it? No, we don't seem to have solved it yet, do we? Um, but it's also true of, well, for example, you were talking about workhouses, how we present Southern Workhouse. Or, and I think, for me, that's something that academia and the National Trust very much share. One last question, and then I will hand it over. And that's about something that, um, I mean, clearly is part of what both organisations are doing, but didn't come out quite so much in the, the talk, which is about, as it were, we're all interested here in, 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 in heritage, in what we can say about heritage now, and in preserving the historic environment, and so on and so forth. But, but the other thing that universities do, of course, is to train the next generation yes. of people who are going to do that. And I mean, does the National Trust see itself as being part of that? Does the, does the, does the, does the university even see itself as being part of that? Or are we just turning, you know, turning out disinterested scholars in the world? Or does the, the university world? see itself yes, part yes. of training the next yes. generation? Yeah. Well, I don't think we should be here if that's not what we, <laughs> <laughs> what we think we're Particularly in our field, as it were, yeah. particularly in the world of heritage and preservation. I mean, just... Well, I, you know, sorry, I, I, if we're not... Um, I, I talked slightly, you know, materialistically about mm. we need support and we need people to be leaving us money and we need people to be joining. Mm. But um, this idea that, uh, and, and indeed the, the statistics show it, the main determinant of somebody coming back to a National Trust house in particular uh, with their family is that they went to one as a child. And therefore, this, this sense that if, if, if we can capture the child and get them interested, I have to say my daughter at 28 still, when we go into any National Trust house, says, can I do the quiz? <laughs> <laughs> and I say, no, you have two degrees now, you can't do the quiz. Um, but if you can engage children, they may go away in their 20s and, you know, 
go up to London and have a completely different view or, or wherever of their cultural life, but they will in fact come back and they will have some sense that heritage history or natural history or whatever it is is significant. So we very much see that as part of our mission. The next lecture in this series is here at St. Luke's Chapel on the 23rd of February. We do hope you'll join us for that. In the meantime, thank you very much for coming. Thank you to uh, Dame Helen and, uh, and Karen for your talks, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.